Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. One thing about Appalachians, we can get competitive. As far as fresh pizza, I mean, I would say we're kind of toward, like, number one because we don't box it. We don't prepare it until you get here. How about that? Our first time entering and we got second place. That's a pretty good deal. It wasn't an option. It was just what you did. Meanwhile, thousand-year floods have devastated eastern Kentucky. People there are just beginning to rebuild. This is going to take weeks, months, years to recover, and, you know, community is all we've got. And the environmental disasters of today inspire Alison Stein's novels about Appalachia's dystopian future. I think of my novels, including this book, Trashlands, as our world only tweaked a little bit. It's a little more extreme. These stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Appalachians love to compete. Whether it's rec league softball, a turkey calling contest, or workplace chili cook-offs, mountain folks are in it to win it. But there's more to competitions than winning. Later in the show, we'll meet competitors who are keepers of beloved Appalachian traditions. But first, let's head to eastern Kentucky. As we record the show this week, residents there are reeling. Between 14 and 16 inches of rain fell on eastern Kentucky over four days in late July, causing thousand-year floods. At least 37 people are dead, and hundreds of homes and businesses destroyed. Katie Myers with the Ohio Valley Resource reports from Whitesburg, Kentucky, where people are rebuilding, mourning, and trying to support their neighbors. In the parlor room, a longtime tattoo shop and music venue, art-covered walls meet a bare floor covered in mud. Rows of sketchbooks with the tattoo artist's drawings sit drying beneath a fan. John Falter works there. The water pressure uh, pushed the doors wide open. As far as, you know, loss of stuff, it could have been so much worse. Mud cakes the streets of Whitesburg. It's on everything. Shoes, cars, furniture piled outside of stores and houses. It lifts dust into the air, making this humid place feel like a desert town. Fire Chief Perry Fowler says they couldn't get mud off the streets. There's not enough water in the city tanks, and they're trying to conserve it. We need the water especially to spray mud out, that sort of thing. So we're going to have a tough time keeping the tanks full, but we've got to get the mud out just for health reasons, if nothing else. The city's losing water to pipe leaks, which officials are working to fix. And the water is not currently safe to drink, if it's working at all. The boil water advisory does stand in effect, and it will be quite some time before that's released. And then, of course, there's Apple Shop. That's where I work. It's where, for decades, WMMT 88.7 FM broadcasts out to the world. The voice of mountain people, as we say, Possum Radio. The microphones and computers are piled against the window. The mud covers them. The bottom floor of the building is unusable right now, says Meredith Scalos, the communications director. We are deeply focused on the initial phases of recovery right now. Um, our highest priority being archival recovery. Apple Shop was home to decades worth of local history in film and audio reels, as well as books, posters, and art. Staff are salvaging what they can, but the work is backbreaking and tedious gently rinsing mud from spools and spools of film in hopes of saving at least some of it. This is going to take weeks, months, years to recover, um, and, you know, community is all we've got. In the Harry M. Cotto Library, dusty footprints lead to the computers, to the coffee pot, to the front desk. We are open today in Whitesburg. And yesterday, offering coffee and a place to just hang out, charge your phone. People are exhausted, walking in to sit for a minute or just to talk with Alita Vogel, the head librarian. Sometimes she gives them a hug. It doesn't feel like a lot, but it's what we can do. The Whitesburg branch came out unscathed, but Vogel says libraries in smaller towns haven't fared so well. I don't know how long it's going to be before Neon and Blackie can open back up, but I'll, I'll probably put on some boots and some grungy clothes and help clear out as much as I can. 
Outside, the mud clings to mail carrier Jody Holbrook's shoes as he makes his way through town. Everybody knows him from his usual route down Main Street. We've got three carriers, but the other two carriers, one of them can't get, can't get here, and the other one, uh, from what I understand, he lost everything he had. Nobody's even heard from him. Holbrook knows a lot of people in this town. The parlor room, the library, apple shop, the apartments, he visits them all. But the post office flooded too, and mail is piling up. I mean, there's no way to describe what I was piled up in there right now that we just can't deliver. I mean, a lot of my addresses, uh, I pull up and there's... Holbrook turns away, blinking back tears. I pull up and the houses are gone. I'm sorry. We'll, we'll make it, I reckon. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers. You can't drive very far anywhere in Appalachia without seeing roadkill. Officials with the Great Smoky Mountains Association now have a new strategy for reducing wildlife deaths on North Carolina highways. Matt Pikin of Blue Ridge Public Radio has more. Frances Feigert still remembers words from her mother along drives they took through the countryside. We'd see a dead fox or a dead coyote and she would say, I wish automobiles had never been invented. And that stuck in my mind. Over the years, as Feigert traveled the world as a magazine editor, she came to see animal deaths as a global problem. But as creative services director with the Great Smoky Mountains Association, Feigert saw a unique way to contribute to the effort of stemming those deaths in this region. Feigert is the author of A Search for Safe Passage, an illustrated paperback book written mainly for preteens. The story casts bears, deer, foxes, raccoons, turtles, woodchucks, and other wildlife as characters in a story of ever-present struggle, animal versus motor vehicle. The Great Smoky Mountains Association is the publisher. It occurred to me that if an 11-year-old is reading this book today, In another 11 years, they're going to be graduating from college, and maybe they're going to have the wildlife engineering degree or the road ecology degree that's going to be part of what solves these problems. The development of the interstate highway system, 41,000 miles of coast-to-coast, border-to-border roadway, had a severe impact on the travel patterns of wildlife. I-40 is a death trap for a lot of wildlife, particularly near Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is incredibly biologically diverse. Jeffrey Hunter is a senior program manager with the National Parks Conservation Association. He said animal deaths in this region were largely anecdotal until 2019. Since then, weekly driving surveys and 120 cameras along a 28-mile stretch of I-40 have put hard numbers behind the deaths. Hunter said officials recorded 103 dead bears over three years. Seven wilderness and conservation groups are behind a coalition to stem those numbers. On one end, they're lobbying legislators to fund wildlife overpasses and culverts. On the other, they're appealing to drivers to slow down. I think the Safe Passage Collaborative is an example of how organizations with different cultures, different missions, different priorities can come together in common cause and solve a seemingly intractable issue. That's also the hope behind Feigert's book. No animals are struck or killed in the book. Instead, wildlife creatures seemingly with little in common form a forest council to steer one another to safe passage over and under roadways and also keep an eye on how humans help or hurt their efforts. At first I thought I wasn't the right person to do it, and then I thought about it and realized I was the perfect person to do it because I'm a writer, but I don't know the science. I do not have all those details in my head that would keep me bogged down in the weeds. And so I was able to write it from a very general perspective that would be perfect for a fifth grader. I did study fables and morality plays when I was an English lit major, and I think a lot of that stuff came back into play when I started working on this. I am a girl by the side. Feigert's commitment to the issue is so inspired, she went so far as to compose and record a song to complement the book. The Asheville band The Fates recorded it and made a video for Safe Passage, Animals Need a Hand. hand. 
Hunter said the federal government recently set aside $350 million for wildlife management efforts around this issue, but that competition for this money is stiff, with needs all over the country similar to those within the Great Smokies. Hunter said North Carolina is about to construct its first wildlife overpass at Stacoa Gap, where the Appalachian Trail crosses State Highway 143. Feigert lives just over the North Carolina state line in Flag Pond, Tennessee. She said her work around this issue is far from over. This is, for me, a great service to be able to commit myself to something that I'm passionate about, make it a part of my job, and make a difference. I like to say in collaboration is the salvation of the world. And then I think we've got a long way to go, but we have certainly got an amazing start. A search for safe passage has already found its way into the hands of fifth graders in Waynesville and Hendersonville, and some of those students from Hendersonville recently spoke on the issue with Governor Roy Cooper. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News. All right, y'all. It's time to put on our game faces. Because we're about to spotlight competition, mountain style. And let me tell you, some of the most competitive people I know are mushroom hunters. Every year, people take to the woods in search of morels, a.k.a. dry land fish, molly moochers, hickory chickens. No matter the name, morels are a seasonal favorite throughout Appalachia, and they inspire all kinds of competition. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave recently went to the Mountain Mushroom Festival in Irvine, Kentucky. She found people looking for the most mushrooms, the biggest mushrooms, and the tastiest way to eat mushrooms. Up on a stage tucked underneath a tent, John Allen is preparing a cream sauce, chock full of morel mushrooms. The cooking demonstrations are in full swing. Now, whenever I'm doing a cream sauce, I actually, when I'm thinning it out, I always go about one step thinner than I want my final sauce to be. Because This is John's 10th year demonstrating at the festival, which celebrates local traditions around morel mushrooms. Morels are a type of wild mushrooms that can be found in the forests of Appalachia in the springtime. They're often identified by their honeycomb-like caps. They can be smaller than a fingertip and bigger than a hand. And they're prized for their meaty texture and their nutty, buttery flavor. For his dish, John layers the morel cream sauce over a piece of sourdough bread and tops that with a slice of tomato and fried morels. It's a note to the Kentucky Hot Brown made with Estill County morels. Uh, we're going to call it the uh, Estill Brown. Why not? You don't see that at all? How's that look? Yeah? yeah. It's really good. While John enjoys sharing his creation with hungry festival goers, he's also vying for the top prize in the mushroom cook-off. He enters the cook-off every year, and a few of his dishes have won him a blue ribbon. I did a, a, a morel-stuffed homemade ravioli once. I, I like that. I one year did a sausage made with wild turkey, cranberries, and morel mushrooms, and then cased it up and then cooked it up, up like you would a sausage. That was really creative, and I had a good time with that one. That's more, probably one of my favorites. These days, John's considered a veteran of the Mushroom Festival. But it wasn't until he moved to Estill County in 2006 that he became interested in hunting and cooking morels. And as someone who didn't grow up in the community, Getting information on how to find morels wasn't easy. When I first moved here, people still guarded it like, uh, you know, it was some sort of well-kept family secret until everybody looked around and realized, oh, oh gosh, no one knows how to do this. So uh, slowly people have been a little nicer, a little more kind about teaching younger folks how to do this stuff. Uh, but everybody's afraid you'll find their honey holes, so that's kind of what it comes down to. Morel hunting can bring out people's competitive side. That's partly because morel season is so short about three to four weeks. But it's also because it takes a lot of skill and effort to find these tasty fungi. It takes a special eye. They change colors throughout the season. They're under the leaves. They're up next to stumps. They don't just pop out there for you to see and find. That's Tina Carolyn. Tina was born and raised in Estill County, and she comes from a long line of mushroom hunters. My papa took me as a little girl, and then I took my kids, and my mom goes, and so we kind of just make it a family affair. And after Easter, after we did our big Easter egg hunt for the kids, then a big truckload of us all loaded up, and we went mushroom hunting. So we- Tina's been demonstrating on the food stage of the festival for about 15 years. Today, she and her aunt, Jen Collins, 
are sharing their family recipe for fried morels. I would say it's a secret recipe, like the KFC or something, but it's not really. It's just uh, flour and cornmeal. So we're going to put a little oil in the skillet. Once the oil heats up, Jen fills the skillet with morels that have been coated in the flour and cornmeal mixture. As the mushrooms turn a golden brown, Tina tells the audience that when her family goes mushroom hunting, it's always a competition. Each other, who finds the first, who finds the largest, who finds the most, who finds the smallest. So we kind of just make it a fun event when we go to the woods together. As Tina describes it, her family can get pretty serious about it. She was quick to respond when an audience member asked if she would ever wait to pick a mushroom. The mushrooms they typically find are pretty small, only about an inch high. But one time, Tina's dad found a surprise growing in a rotted tree in her grandmother's apple orchard. And there was a mushroom there that I think it measured out. It was bent over a little bit, but we measured it out 12 inches. He had it put in the paper, and that's probably been 20-plus years ago by now. And that's probably the biggest one we have ever found. Along with the mushroom cook-off, the Mountain Mushroom Festival hosts competitions for who can bring in the biggest morel and the most morels by weight. At noon on the first day of the festival, the contest board showed the leading totals were 9 by 7 inches for the largest single morel and 24 pounds for the most weight. While Tina and her family make morel hunting a contest amongst themselves, none of them have ever entered any of the festival competitions. And have you ever entered the cook-off? I have not. We have not ever entered. I just thought of it today. It was actually the first time I thought, hmm, we might should have uh, fried some up earlier and entered them just to give a few people a run for their money because... Everybody likes country cooking. I mean, who doesn't like plain old just country cooking? Up on the food stage, the first batch of fried morels is almost finished. We'll try to make sure we get enough samples for everybody, at least get a taste. I mean, you come to the mushroom fest, we at least want to taste the mushroom. But before Tina and her Aunt Jen pass the morels out to the audience, they slip a couple to the festival judges. For the first time, they've decided to enter the cook-off. And just a few minutes later, one of the festival volunteers comes up on the stage. So I'm going to interrupt just for a second just to announce the winners. We had three people enter our cooking contest. Um, entry number one was, of course, John Allen's Hot Brown from this morning's presentation. And he got a perfect score, a 36. So he actually got first place. Another blue ribbon for John. They announced that the next entry came in third, which means... And our third entry are these two beautiful ladies here with second place prize. While Tina and her Aunt Jen didn't win first place, they did earn themselves a red ribbon and some bragging rights. How about that? Our first time entering and we got second place. That's a pretty good deal. Now we have award-winning mushrooms. (laughs) And since the fried morels were a family recipe, Maybe they can share those bragging rights. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Irvin, Kentucky. Ever live in a place where there's a competition between two restaurants and people sort of decide which team they're on? That's what's happening in Wheeling, West Virginia. Folkways reporter Zach Harold says people there are passionate about their pizza. That's because an accident of history led to a new style. Consider it Appalachia's contribution to America's great regional pizza traditions. And it goes by the name DiCarlo's Famous. Do you want a pepperoni on it? Yes. Have a name? Zach. If you need some reading material while waiting on your lunch at DiCarlo's Famous Pizza in downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, might I suggest the big plaque just left of the front door? It tells the whole history of Ohio Valley Pizza a regional cuisine with a story that begins just up the road in Steubenville, Ohio, in the late 1800s. That's when the DiCarlos left their home in Sora, Italy, to come to the United States. They opened a little grocery store to serve their fellow immigrants. The store became renowned for its Italian bread, which got so popular the family converted the whole business to a bakery, making bread as well as cakes, donuts, and cookies. Then came World War II. 
Primo de Carlo found himself stationed in his ancestral homeland, and it was there he discovered a delicacy called pizza. Primo returned home determined to get in the pizza business. He borrowed some cookie sheets from the bakery, as well as the family bread dough recipe, and started tinkering. But the de Carlos ran into a problem. They didn't have a pizza oven. By the time the crust was as crispy as Primo liked, the cheese on top was burned. So he just added the cheese after it came out of the oven. Cold cheese on a hot crust. The family had single-handedly, and more or less accidentally, created a brand new kind of pizza that would eventually take the region by storm. It would come to be known as Ohio Valley Pizza or Wheeling Pizza, but more often than not, it would be called DiCarlo's Pizza. Hold on, I think my order's up. It's us. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Anyway, Primo opened the first store in Steubenville in 1945. Then he and his kid brother Galdo opened another store in downtown Wheeling four years later. It's only expanded from there. There are now DiCarlo's franchises and imitators all over Ohio and West Virginia, and their numbers are increasing by the day. There's even a location in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina now. The DiCarlo family hopes their cold cheese pizza will soon take its place in the pantheon of American pizza styles, alongside New York's big floppy slices, Chicago's deep dish, and Detroit's thick crusts. But here's the thing. According to locals, not all DiCarlo's are selling the same pizza. There are subtle differences in the crust, the sauce, the cheese. So if Ohio Valley Pizza is about to go national, which is the real deal? I decided to hit the road to find out, you know, for journalism. I came to the downtown location at the suggestion of local journalist Jeremy Morris. He wrote a pretty extensive history of the Ohio Valley pizza phenomenon for the website WeLunk. We'll go grab a, a couple slices and, and watch the barges and, and look at the uh, architecture on the island. There's no finer way to, to spend a lunch hour or an evening in Wheeling than some DiCarlo's on the river. So that's exactly what I did. Took my pizza down to the riverfront where, unfortunately for radio, some guys were power washing the sidewalks. It was here I took my first bite, and it was revelatory. The crust was way crispier than I expected. You could still see the individual shreds of cold cheese. That cheese was salty and chewy, calling attention to itself in a way that melted cheese just never does. My pizza research was only beginning, though. Another name that comes up quite often when you're discussing Ohio Valley pizza is Patsy's in Elm Grove. I got Wheeling native Patrick Yoho to give me the scoop on this place. I met up with him as he waited on slices in the parking lot. If you pull in here and wait for pizza, um, you're going to be sitting here for 45 minutes. Uh, they, you, know, you call in, then you, you get a number. You, you order what you want, and they give you a number. And we're number 74. Patsy's used to be a DiCarlo's. Galdo DiCarlo originally opened this shop before turning over the reins to employee Pasquale Vespa, Patsy for short. The family did that sometimes. But these franchise agreements weren't as heavy-handed as you might see with a national fast food chain today. Owners like Patsy had the freedom to make small tweaks where they saw fit. Patsy's is different. Uh, the sauce is different. The cheese is kind of like crumbled instead of grated like long slices <laughs> uh, and the, the sauce is spicier it's got a green pepper kind of kick to it and the crust is airy thin most of the time and very crispy and yes yeah it's super thin that other voice is molly poffenberger she's originally from charleston but moved to wheeling after college scared me to death as a transplant i was like intimidated <laughs> by the whole thing because somebody was like this is what you have to do, and there's no extra toppings. Like, if you were to say, can I get black olives, oh, no, or, no, oh my no. gosh, they would blackball you. Yeah, that's the thing that's very different, too. The, the, it's, it's pepperoni cheese. Uh, in the last uh, 10 years, they 10 or 15 years, they've added uh, pepper rings that you can get on the side in a bag. and you can put. There's a reason uh, so little has changed, cold. as employee Erica Mitchum told me. It's, you know, you don't fix it if it's not broke, you know? As far as fresh pizza, I mean, I would say we're kind of toward, like, number one because we don't box it. We don't prepare it until you get here. So it's not like it sits on the oven. 
Now, Patrick, being a seasoned Patsy's veteran, had a suggestion to make the there pizza taste even fresher. Can't see it on the radio, but there you go. See, you can see the cheese. It's crumbly. He got a plastic bag of extra cheese to sprinkle on top. Okay, so sometimes it comes with a lot of cheese, sometimes it doesn't. It kind of depends on who's working. And I feel like when you pick it up, a lot of the cheese can fall off. So. I will say the um, the cold added cold cheese and cold pepperoni. We add something to it. It does. Now, by this point, I'd eaten pizza for both lunch and dinner, and I still had one more stop on my tour, the DiCarlo's in Wellsburg, West Virginia. I came here at the suggestion of my friend Candace Nelson. You might know her as the author of the West Virginia Pepperoni Roll book, but she's also a Wellsburg native and a die-hard fan of the DiCarlo's up here. You know, growing up, DiCarlo's for us was a treat. There's something about knowing on payday, you got to go to the DiCarlo's, and even if you had to wait for an hour, it was worth it because, you know, when you get home, you have the best tasting pizza that you're going to have until the next time you can afford this special treat. When I arrived, I found Mark Vaughn work in the ovens, just like he has for the last 20 years. He told me this is one of the most traditional DiCarlo's. Originally opened by Galdo himself back in the day, before it was taken over by current owner Tim Morris. Yeah, same oven. Everything's pretty much the same. A couple updates here and there, paint jobs and whatnot. But by this point in the day, I'd eaten a slice of pizza for almost every hour I'd been awake. So this time, I just ordered one. What's the best way to order? What's your favorite? My favorite: extra cheese and mushrooms. Can I get one of those? I ate it in what's apparently the customary way. Standing in the parking lot, box on the trunk. And it was crispy and cheesy and chewy. The mushrooms lended some extra flavor and texture. It was delicious, just like all the other pizza I'd had that day. Now, I'm not trying to cop out here. Each of the three locations I visited did have subtle differences. But I, I don't think I can say one is better than the other. Let's say Ohio Valley Pizza does go national. When they get that first DiCarlo's in Sioux Falls or Pensacola, pizza lovers are going to rave over that crispy crust, the tangy tomato sauce, the cold cheese. They won't know whether they got the downtown version or the Elm Grove version or the Wellsburg version. Maybe a few of them will be inspired to trace this pizza back to its source and that's when they'll discover all that nuance that the people of the Ohio Valley, the true connoisseurs, have been debating for decades. Everybody else? They're just going to be happy they got a darn good pizza. From the cold cheese pizza capital of the world, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Those last two stories came to us from our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. You can see photos of Mushroom Hunters and Zach's Hunt for the best cold cheese pizza at our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we'll visit an elementary school in southern Ohio, where fifth graders are required to get up on stage and perform a song. Some students sing in Welsh. Uh, I think it's important because since the Welsh basically, like, founded basically this area and I think it's great to like support that. That's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
Eisteddfod is probably not a word that rolls off the tongue of everyone in Appalachia. But in Wales, it refers to a traditional music competition that goes back nearly a thousand years. Immigrants brought the tradition to southern Ohio, where it's endured for generations. Thanks in part to some brave kids. Folkwiz reporter Capri Cafaro has this story. The auditorium at Westview Elementary School in Jackson, Ohio, is at capacity. At least 100 parents, grandparents, brothers, and sisters are here to watch their family members perform. Billy Witt is singing Callan Lawn, a Welsh song about valuing the little things in life. Billy wasn't crazy about the idea of getting up and singing this song in front of this crowd, but he seems resolute, determined to get through Callan Lawn and be done with his performance. Uh, I sung Colin Lawn because my friend was going to sing this song, but he didn't know how to pronounce like any of the words, so I was singing it to him for him to like try to figure it out. And Mr. Kugel overheard me, and he asked me if I wanted to try to sing that. Mr. Kugel is the fifth grade music teacher. You'll hear from him later. And at first I was kind of not really, but then... He kind of talked me into it. Even though it took some convincing to get Billy to sing the Welsh song, he saw some value in doing it. Uh, I think it's important because since the Welsh basically like founded basically this area, and I think it's great to uh, like support that and like have a bunch of different things like the Estedfod to keep that tradition going. Getting up in front of a crowd and singing is part of a Welsh music tradition called the Eisteddfod. Let me say that slowly for you. I said fad. It has an important place in Jackson, Ohio culture because almost two centuries ago, over 3,000 Welsh immigrants arrived in Southern Ohio and brought with them the centuries-old tradition. This I said fad performance is from 1947 in Wales. With the traditional trumpet call to the four winds, Wales's week-long nationalist Stetherford is opened at Colwyn Bay. A crowd of 12,000, including visitors from all over the world, gather at the legendary Gorseth Circle to witness Wales's greatest national institution. The Stetherford Choir leads the crowd singing Wales's national anthem, another chapter added to the ancient history of Wales. To this day, the Eisteddfod still happens every year in Wales, just like it does in Jackson, Ohio. The Eisteddfod has been part of education here in Jackson for the last 96 years. During a break between shows, I met Catherine Smalley. Every child back when we were in school, 55 years ago, I graduated, so it's been a while, but... Everyone sang a solo. It wasn't an option. It was just what you did. Catherine Smalley came to this year's Eisteddfod to watch her grandson sing in the performance. She says the event has changed a bit over the decades. They've given some of the kids other options by singing duets or quartets or whatever, which is good. That at least gets them up there. In today's version of the Eisteddfod, students of Jackson City Schools are required to participate in all five years of elementary school. The students aren't judged, not yet. That happens later, when they're in high school. For now, they're just performing songs like Billy Witt. So the Welsh song that they sang was, is called Callan Lan, um, and the translation, rough translation of that is that... Uh, the singer doesn't need material things. Um, they just need a pure heart. They don't need gold or silver or pearls and, uh, in order to have a, a happy life. That's Sam Kugel. Billy mentioned him earlier as Mr. Kugel. Sam's a music teacher in the schools, and he teaches students the melodies. He gets some help teaching them the words. He turns to Dan Rothenham, a professor based in Wales. Dan helps students with Welsh pronunciation. What was important was the pronunciation regarding um, Callan Lan. So, um, you know, doing a lot of enunciating and showing them what some of the words 
meant that kind of sound similar in English so that they could kind of relate and go, oh, well, that's a really easy word for me to know that I know and use every day um, here in Southeast Ohio. So if I've learned the, the Welsh word, then um, hopefully we have like a, a, an impact on them, especially given the, the Welsh heritage. And at one point there would have been a, a lot of Welsh spoken. So it was really nice to be able to, to, to do those things. Starting in the sixth grade, participating in the Eisteddfod is no longer required. At that point, students can choose to continue to participate, and the Eisteddfod shifts from just being a performance to becoming a competition. My name is Camden Robinson, and I am a sophomore at Jackson High School. Camden says being required to get on stage in elementary school gave him the building blocks for success in high school and beyond. I don't think I would have ever proceeded in doing um, the Eisteddfods if I wasn't required in elementary school, because it requires a lot of confidence to stand up in front of all these people that you know or don't know even to just sing or play your instrument. Like, it's a lot, and it takes a lot of building up to get that. Like, it, I still struggle with, like, the confidence to get up in front of people and sing or play my instrument. It just takes a lot, and I, I don't think I ever could have done it without, being, without doing it in elementary school. And it's a good thing Camden has become more comfortable in front of a crowd since the high school I said FOD can be a more stressful experience. The performance is put on for a community-wide audience and each student or group is judged. Having actual judges judging us, deciding who is playing the best and what can be fixed, what can be critiqued, and everything along those lines. Whereas in elementary school, it's more of you're doing it for your friends and your family and to keep culture and heritage. One thing I really do like like about it is that like it really helps with stage fright because that's what a lot like a lot of people struggle with that. Naomi McGee is in fourth grade. Like uh, that's how I lost stage fright was going up in front of a big crowd and then realizing it's fun. Eisteddfod may be difficult to pronounce, but its impact is simple to explain. In Jackson, Ohio, the Eisteddfod brings a sense of purpose and pride to those who participate. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro. That story is also part of our Folkways reporting project. Hey, by the way, check out Inside Appalachia's brand new Instagram account. You can go there to see photos of people building the culture of Appalachia through music, food, and craft. Find it at in Appalachia. Now, I absolutely love running. I never time myself, but I use that time instead to listen to music and work through whatever's in my head. But a lot of people run to compete for the fastest speed, the quickest time. Carol Rustin from Jefferson County, West Virginia, is an avid runner who recently won a gold medal at the West Virginia Senior Sports Classic. And she's qualified for the National Senior Games. What makes her stand out is that she's successful despite having lost her ability to see. Reporter Shepard Snyder spoke to Rustin about her experience as a blind athlete. All right, so starting off, I was wondering if you could go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Carl Rustin. I began running during the uh, month of November 2020. And um, during that time, I wasn't participating in any marathons. I was just actually running um, and I enjoyed it so much that um, I decided that um, I would like to participate in 5K runs. With me beginning this entire path of running, um, it started with my granddaughter, who was seven years old at the time, and her name is Gabby, and she would actually run with me. And um, she would tell me if there was gravel in the road or if cars were coming and also when to um, actually not run so fast whereby there were obstacles in the road. And the reason for this is because I am blind. And what uh, competitions did you end up running for? The competitions I began becoming involved with were um, actually fundraisers. 
So I ran for uh, the veterans. I ran, I did runs for homeless. I also did runs for, for actually um, uh, abused women. Um, so in other words, from uh, November of 2020 until now, I have actually participated in over 10, maybe 10, 12 runs, um, which I have medals for. But the most important one that all of them are important, but one of the ones that I want to point out, uh, which is of great significance, is that I did my first um, official um, documented run for the Maryland Senior Olympics. And that was held actually in Montgomery County. I did that run last year and I am the first blind person, 73 years of age, who has ever done a 5K run. Did you kind of set out to win anything when you first started or was this just kind of a way to kind of take care of your health and kind of stay in shape? Well, yes, there was, I did not have any goals in mind other than I enjoyed it. And that what was important to me is that's the enjoyment of running. I don't know if you ever heard people talk about the runner's high you actually get, and that's what would happen to me. Um, so with me actually getting out there in the mornings and doing my runs, it actually rejuvenated me for the remainder of the day. I was also wondering if there were any kind of unique challenges in preparing for the 5K. I'm sure a lot of people kind of assume that it must be harder for you to prepare for an athletic event like this because A, you're a senior and B, you're blind. So I was wondering uh, how did you kind of overcome these uh, challenges in preparing if there were any at all? I still haven't overcome them to be perfectly honest with you. Um, every time I get out there and run, every, every time I get out there and run, and I'm emphasizing that I still have challenges. Um, so for an example, before I get out there and run, as I said, I always do a prayer. But with, even with me doing the prayer, I still feel intimidated. I, I start thinking negative thoughts, for an example, Okay, Carol, can you really do this? Okay, Carol, is it really worthwhile? Okay, Carol, why have you decided to do something like this? Okay, why are you putting so much stress on yourself? So I, I, I still have my challenges every single day before I do a run. I, I have never, and I don't think there ever will be a time that I can honestly say that I have overcome the challenges. And not because I am blind, and not because I'm 73 years of age. I think with any athlete, when you're out there and you're beginning to um, you know, participate in whatever your choice of athletics is concerned, you always gonna have that feeling of intimidation and trepidation, that feeling of you know, questioning whether or not you can actually achieve it. Now, um, going back to the end of the uh, Maryland Senior Olympics and you completing the race mm -hmm. uh, and qualifying for the National Senior Games, mm -hmm. what emotions were going through your head when you uh, ended up completing that 5K? I cried. <laughs> I, I cried because for me, it was surreal. Um, after all that I had gone through as far as me training myself as far as uh, my, my granddaughter being so uh, attentive and encouraging me because when I would be out there running, she would run with me at seven years old and she would be, and she would be saying things to me like, Grandma, you can do this. You got it. I know you can. Things like that. And that was, that was my cheerleader. I didn't have anyone else. It was just surreal because I, I couldn't believe it that I had actually, that I did it, that I actually did it, particularly since I did not have a trainer. It's incredible. And now you said you, um, completing this qualified you for the uh, national mm -hmm. senior games. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. What was that experience like? That experience was just a very positive experience for me. Um, because what it did, it gave me the confidence in knowing that, hey, you know what?
Curl, you did the Maryland Senior Olympics, you qualify for the Maryland Senior Olympics, you can go even further if you choose to. So it gave me that, it gave me that, I mean, enormous push as far as that confidence that I needed in order for me to um, proceed to, uh, in, the, in order for me to participate, not proceed, but to participate in the National Senior Games. That was Carol Rustin of Jefferson County, West Virginia, speaking with reporter Shepard Snyder about her experience as a blind 5K runner. To clarify, Rustin said she was the first blind person to run a 5K, but she meant in the Maryland Senior Olympics. She also won a gold medal in the West Virginia Senior Games. What about you? What kind of competitions are happening in your neck of the woods? Maybe you know about a sport or contest we've never heard about. Or maybe someone there makes pizza like nobody else. Tell us about it. Write us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us at InAppalachia on Instagram and Twitter. This has been a hard summer, weather-wise. Flooding in some places, drought in others record-breaking high temperatures. This kind of extreme weather, along with ongoing environmental disasters, is inspiring one writer to imagine new futures here in Appalachia. Allison Stein's second novel, Trashlands, takes place in a polluted, dystopian Appalachia where people use plastic as money. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsopel sat down with Stein to talk about her vision of Appalachia and how it's not entirely removed from the present. Imagine an Appalachia where there are no longer four seasons and where climate disasters have knocked out infrastructure and created a society where plastic trash becomes a valuable commodity. Allison Stein, author of Trashlands, goes there. Decades into the future, Appalachia is known as Scrapalachia. I asked Stein to describe it. I think of my novels, including this book, Trashlands, as our world only tweaked a little bit. It's a little more extreme. I kind of feel like this may be a way that we're heading. And in this book, there is so much plastic in the world that it's used as currency. Plastic is one of the only things of value, or at least they make it have value, still left. Um, And so I was thinking about, you know, in the wake of these kind of 100-year floods, worse than 100-year floods, right, these unprecedented floods, what would be left when the waters recede? And I think it would be plastic, something we have a lot of now. And so I live for most of my adult life in Appalachian, Ohio. And, you know, some people still consider that part of the country kind of a a wasteland or a junk a junkyard, a big junkyard. And so I decided to just take that idea, which I think is false, of course, and put it to the extreme. It's full of junk now. It's full of scrap. And so it's called Scrapalacha. And in Scrapalacha, people work as pluckers. They are nomadic and they, they risk their lives to pick plastic like bottle caps from rivers and other places to sell. The plastic that is sold in Scrapalacha is sent to factories to be made into plastic bricks that people are using to build with in cities, other places. There are still cities in this future where you can get medicine. They even have newspapers. But people in Scrapalachia are really disconnected from that because there's no real roads or electricity or cell phones anymore. It's just a place where this resource that's needed, this plastic, comes from, and the environment is wrecked for the people who live there, which sounds kind of familiar. How did you use the history of energy extraction in Appalachia to create this version of the future? I've lived in Appalachian, Ohio for most of my adult life. My son was born there at home. And I lived in kind of a a small remote town that does have this history. And the history is everywhere when you live in a place like that, Um, as it is in a lot of parts of Appalachia. You know know where the mines are. Some of them are open. Most of them are closed. I wrote an essay once which told the true story that 
some children in my hometown, they color the the rivers on their little drawings in kindergartens red or orange because that's the color of the creeks in the woods, you know. For a long time, my son and his classmates couldn't drink the water at their school. Um, The water fountains were covered over with garbage bags because there was lead in the water. So I think when it's everywhere, I think it's easier to think about, you know, if you pay attention, I think you can see the legacy of that kind of exploitation and that it's not, it's not a history, you know, it's still ongoing um, and it happens every day. So I was thinking of a way to talk about it without talking about it. You know, the characters in the book are not miners, they're not frackers, um, but they do, you know, try to take the little resources they have out of this very ravaged countryside. Alison Stein is the author of the speculative novel Trashlands and the staff culture writer at Salon. There's more of our conversation at AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsopel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports regional environmental news. I spoke with Alison Stein last summer about her previous novel Road Out of Winter. We'll post a link to that on our show page at wvpublic.org. Her next book, Dust, is set to come out in 2023. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Cornbread, butter, beans, and you Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John R. Miller, Ona, Chris Stapleton, and Dean Martin, a member of the famed Rat Pack who's from Steubenville, Ohio, and an Appalachian by birth. Producer Bill Lynch wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at in Appalachia. Or find my personal account, at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S, like the atomic particle. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.